वेलकम टू सिंटॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the kinds of pain. We'll think about pain, its mechanisms, meaning, role, and its fundamental unshareability. Is pain often a good indicator of the amount of harm done? How much of pain is in the mind? Is it entirely subjective? Is it always logical? How can it be measured? How can we accurately grasp another person's pain? Why do different pains feel different? Why is it so difficult to describe a headache? Is emotional pain different from the physical? How is conception of pain linked to the idea of torture? And will we be able to accurately express and understand pain in the future? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Mary Ann Mukarden. She is an oncologist but took up palliative care as a passion because she felt that much could be done about suffering patients. She is from Tata Memorial Center in Mumbai. Professor Harish Narayan Das. He is a professor of sociology at JNU New Delhi. and Dr Benjamin Siegel he is a professor of history at Boston University so Mary Ann why don't you set the ball rolling with you what is pain is it straightforward have you sorted it out you and your colleagues over the years um is it straightforward to put a finger on this phenomenon called pain is physiologically uh, biologically is it it's not that simple because pain has it's very complex it has many components mm-hmm. it is defined as a subjective phenomenon and in it is a lot about what happens even in your past and it's not only physical it's psychological social spiritual so when you try to put all the components together for each individual pain has a different meaning and what do you mean it has to do with the past well what has a person felt pain in his past in a, in the childhood maybe a uh, accident and that was a very fearful time so something like that would affect the myself working in the cancer field that would affect the the adult now in how that person perceives pain and is that simply via the pain threshold via what yeah there are pain pathways which are very well defined mm-hmm. and it's in that sense there's a lot of science towards why pain is felt sure. but again since it's subjective there's a lot of emotional component which also goes into that person's perception of pain as an individual but would it be fair to say that history and emotion are always involved in pain Uh, well depends one uh, because each human being is a human being so whatever right. one has gone through in the past would affect anything mm-hmm. but i mean there are nerves and the nerves have you know impulses and these impulses are felt because of some noxious stimulus uh, so in that sense if the noxious stimulus is severe 
one would expect the patient to say the pain is severe. Right. But his pain threshold and what he's able to tolerate and what he's able to carry on with his daily life, that would be influenced by something in the past. And the operative word is the nerves or the spinal cord in the brain is always involved? Uh, yes. Or? It starts off with what we call nociceptive receptors which are present in the skin, in the skin. up to the level of the bone. Mm-hmm. So usually the injury is perceived from that receptor which then travels up a nerve into the spinal cord and then goes upwards through the spinal cord into the brain. But the brain is always involved. The brain is always involved. Right. At some level, it's always in the mind. It's always there. I mean, there is a reflex because, for instance, if you had, maybe you burnt yourself on a hot iron or the gas. Sure. Well, that's a reflex. It takes place in the spinal cord level and you pull your hand away. What do you mean it's a reflex? It doesn't go to the brain? Of course it does. I mean, it's a reflex. It goes from the skin into the spinal cord and the message comes back to the hand pull away sure but that's the reflex but however at the same time the message does go to the brain so but you have pulled your hand away before you have actually felt that feeling of pain oh that's interesting but does the brain know it the brain uh, the brain doesn't know the reflex Hmm. but the brain will perceive that i have felt a pain and because of that pain my hand was pulled away but it was already pulled away but is the is is pain something per se or it's always a manifestation of something it's like usually pain is not a, manif- a disease right uh, it's not a disease because it it is a manifestation so if the nerve starts somewhere beneath the, on the skin or beneath the skin there has to be a stimulus which has caused that pain fiber to give the impulse saying that there is pain somewhere so this is that noxious stimulus yeah, or whatever yeah, that yeah. you're talking so it could be it could be an injury uh, for me it could be cancer uh, you, I guess we will be talking about torture. So torture is also a painful stimulus. Right. Now, all these different varieties of pain are perceived by the brain. And that perception of pain is individual. And it can be affected by many other things which happen in the brain. Right. Like emotion. Um, even, I would say, even there's a concept of spiritual pain. So that again is affected by what the person's spirituality is about. So it's very complex. <laughs> and Harish, what is is pain something per se, or is is that just the doctor and Marianne speaking, and and other other different traditions? Is there a way to think about it in in other ways? And of course, they have to be rigorous enough, hopefully. Uh, I th- I would believe that uh, I think what she's saying, maybe historically specific uh, to a particular epistemology Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that uh, you started by talking about the unshareability of pain. Right. And uh, I think she, and then we are trying to locate pain in terms of a physical sensation. And uh, and she said that you you asked her whether the pain is a disease. And she said, no, it's not a disease. Mm -hmm. Now, this might not be the way it's perceived in other systems of medicine. Such as what? Uh, but we'll come to that in a moment. You sure. know what? What happens is, I think somewhere starting 1800, mm-hmm. nominally speaking, there seems to be some kind of an epistemic shift, and this epistemic shift is that till about 1800, patients were nominally asked, "How do you feel?" And, <laughs> and patients are supposed yeah. to narrate how they feel, and the patient's testimony is fundamental in making a diagnosis. Uh, now, if Foucault is to be believed, he would tell us that from 1800 onwards, the shift is year after the patient will be asked, where does it hurt? Right. 
And, so it uh, goes from being very general to being more localized, and obviously precisely a localized. Of... Namely, that pain. Then, how do you feel? How do you? Where does it hurt? Means that the pain is an index of something inside the body. Mm. Namely, as a doctor, then she'll have to find some kind of a lesion. Mm. Uh, and if you're not able to find a lesion, then in modern biomedicine, you're left with a strange paradox of there being patients without diseases and diseases without patients. So, but is there is there a more or less one-to-one mapping between different kinds of pain and different kinds of diseases or conditions? Or? Scientifically, definitely. Because if if the disease is touching the nerve, mm-hmm. the nerve is feeling the sensation of pain. I, I think the point that Harish is making is that are there situations when you feel the pain but you can't put your finger on the disease? Uh, so is there a diagnosis? Yeah, I mean... Uh, there are many types of pain where you can't find where the pain is coming from. There's something called phantom pain. I don't know if you've heard of that, yeah, sure, where the limb sure. is gone, but the patient still says that he can feel the pain in but the that's limb. That's still a relatively more exotic variety. Yeah, yeah. But I'm something saying something more mundane. For I, example, I do supposing understand. you have lower back pain, and if you're not able to find what is the cause of it, uh, then very often then what happens is here, this is where, uh, then if you're not able to find the cause, then sometimes in modern myomedicine, then people will say that this pain is psychosomatic. Right. And the cause might be in the head, not actually physically in the body. But the somatic part is still there. Or they might say it's altogether psychological. <laughs> and by psychosomatic means that it's in the head. Yes. The, the, the soma is only a manifestation of something in the head. Sure. And so you're then sent to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist will then try and figure out why you're having a somatic manifestation of something that's there in the head. And if the patient, very often patients feel belittled by this Mm. and they walk out of such a situation and then they turn to alternative medicine and when they turn to alternative medicine, then the notion of pain there is differently understood. Where pain per se is a disease, the pain is not an index of some underlying cause. So if you go to the chiropractor or if you go to Ayurveda, then pain per se is a disease. Because in Ayurveda, pain means that your vayu is disturbed. Some kind of imbalance. Yes, for example. So right. you're, then then it'll be addressed as something in its own right. But isn't that a metaphor? No, it's not no? a metaphor at all. No, no, it's literal. I mean, why would you call that a metaphor? I don't know. So what do you mean by balance? Balance of what? With... Oh, I mean, that's another system of medicine which has other founding axioms about the world. Sure. And you have to take those founding axioms on board. Sure. And only if you take them on board, those other systems will make sense. If you want to call them into question, as people have called them into question, then we are out of business. And then if you say, and the fact that you use the word metaphor is very instructive. Right. Because people will say, where is this value? Can you show it to me? Right. The, then the answer is yes and no, I can't show it to you. And I can, I cannot. And if you then want to dismiss it because your rules, your evidentiary rules are borrowed from biomedicine, and if you apply the same evidentiary rules in other system of medicine, and if you're not able to then accord those other axioms, any kind of, you know, whatever it is, sanctity. in some ways, and I'm sure a lot of people have thought about it, is that how is Vayu any more concrete? And it doesn't need to be the only way to think about these things. How is Vayu more concrete than the psyche, right? So if there's something is psychosomatic, you feel a little funny about just pushing it up to the 10th floor and saying that it has to do with the psyche, but then you replace psyche with Vayu or what or whatever it, the it's, it's difference fuzzy is enough. that the vayu can partly be also seen because it's tangible because it also means breath mm-hmm. and the breath has as a sensation can be felt sure. while the notion of the psyche is based on a mind body dualism sure. and that mind body dualism is part of another episteme sure. 
Sure. And part of the pain is built on this particular notion, on this mind-body dualism. And uh, that I need to be able to, if there's pain as an index of some underlying disease, I need to be able to find out what that underlying disease is. And if I'm not able to find that underlying disease, then uh, you will have a patient with no disease. Mm. Or sometimes you can go to the doctor and you have no pain, but they might be able to find kidney stones. And you <laughs> might have no pain at all. And yeah. then the doctor will say, you have to remove those kidney stones because Not you have a latent diseases. and masked disease and you will have pain in the future. <laughs> So, not all diseases have corresponding pain. No, exactly. Right. Or not all diseases need not have corresponding pain, at least in the present. Right, right. Uh, so right. this is, a, I think, a particular kind. So this notion, I think what is being articulated by her is something that is uh, peculiar to that particular episteme. Right. And other epistemologies might not see pain in quite the same way uh, that we see pain in this particular episteme. Where are you on this, Benjamin? What does the historian in you say? What 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 is pain? How has it been conceived over the years? Yeah, the the historian in me um, is resisting the impulse to look too deeply into the psyche, and instead uh, <laughs> wants to look more at social formations and political mm -hmm. formations. Um, uh, pain may or may not be a disease, uh, uh, but it but it may be uh, it, it may be considered an epidemic. People can experience pain collectively. Um, you mean was, as as a society, as culture, as groups, as as more groups, widely. as groups. Um, we can we can uh, experience pain in groups. Uh, uh, we can experience pain because we're groups of workers who are facing particular um, workplace um, uh, frustrations. And you're saying this as a historical fact, Benjamin. So, you know, when you say we can, you don't mean there's a possibility. We do. We do. It has we been felt. We unequivocally feel that um, right. ref refugees can feel pain. Uh, that can be somatic pain uh, on account of uh, disease or on account of illness. Um, but it also can be things that are manifest uh, together as shared collective experiences. Um, and I think that sociology and anthropology would tell us a lot about that. Um, as a historian, though, I'm interested in these moments when pain. Um, uh, uh, moves from being merely, uh, and maybe not merely, but moves from being solely a personal experience to a shared experience when mm. pain is communicated um, between individuals, between groups, politically, um, uh, to speak to different concerns about economy or politics. Mm. Mm. But, but similar econ economic conditions or similar social conditions don't manifest similarly, or do they, in terms of at the level of pain? So does everyone feel lower back pain? Does everyone feel, or is it is it more whole body? Is it more general? Are we talking about something abstract here, or is it the more localized variety? Um, it may be some of both. Um, it's 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 possible to experience um, uh, to talk about pain in different ways. Mm -hmm. So we can experience. Um, uh, a headache, and many of us have the shared experience of being uh, right. uh, of having a headache. Right. Um, we may also feel heartbreak, and we may express express that in differentially somaticized ways. Um, right. We may talk about it hurting and mean that very seriously, and we may mean it more metaphorically. Um, as a historian, you only have access to what people um, say, and usually what they say is something that they've written down, and then the experience of pain becomes very tricky for us to figure out. And as you look through whatever period you may have thought of or studied, Benjamin, is, is there is there some waxing and waning? Is there some change in how pain has been perceived or at least archived? That's all you can touch and see. Um, yeah, let me, are notions similar? Well, let, let me answer that question by talking about a very specific moment. It's the moment that I'm thinking about. It's this mm -hmm. moment in the early 1980s when um, in the United States um, we were moving into a the beginnings of a recession mm -hmm. uh, and... 
there was a new tool that was introduced. I think this was around 1980, 1981. And it's something that's very familiar to most people who've gone to a hospital. It's a chart that shows um, a little yellow smiley face. Uh, and it starts off, he's smiling on one side. And as you progress, the smiley face turns more and more agonized. Uh, right. And you're asked to use that. We've all gone to the hospital and had the experience of having to point where we are on the scale. What is this? Uh, this is some kind of pain uh, inventory. Yeah, it's a pain scale. Pain scale. Uh, How many faces did it have? Because the Five? childhood version has, I think, six faces. There's different versions. And yeah. I actually, yeah. I don't know <laughs> yeah. what if there's a different Indian version and a different uh, version used in the United States. I imagine there may be different ones in different manufacturers. We could probably trace them down. But this is a really interesting tool because you didn't learn with this tool uh, in medical schools in the 1950s or the 1960s. This comes out of a very particular moment. Right. And it's when pain is being used as a diagnostic. So pain is being, pain is being used... Um, is something that patients are asked to communicate in the same way that they might communicate uh, that that you might take their blood pressure or you might measure their their heart rate um it's something that we can use to communicate now when we see a new uh category uh when we see a new diagnostic tool we have to understand what epistemically is changing at that moment or what politically is producing that so what's problematic here what do you mean is is it just a fact that this 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 thing came to be or uh What what is interesting about this? Well, that's that's that may may or may not be a uh, 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 value neutral, or it may it may be positive, or it may be negative. But but it certainly is a change, and yeah. and uh, uh, the coin of our realm is looking at these moments of change. But hasn't pain always been a diagnostic tool? But by always, I mean like for a very long time. Yeah, I think Benjamin is talking about map measuring the severity of pain. So then we're going back again to the scientific, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to the scientific side of. you treat pain depending on its severity so but benjamin and i could feel the same severity of pain but we could mark different faces and men and women tend to mark that scale very differently so it's subjective right. so what you feel as a scale of on 8 with the same stimulus i may say that it's on a scale of 5 right but i have to treat the pain depending on what the patient says it is so if he says his that pain is, is 8 yeah. i have to treat him with a medicine which is meant for 8 which is severe pain but the same pain benjamin may feel it as 5 and then i will give drugs for only moderate pain does that work does this method work it works it works because if pain is subjective we have to treat according to what the patient says she or he feels mm. we will review again in 24 hours so i might not have succeeded i may not have got it right then i will change but it is subjective and it is personal it's what the patient says it is What, what what was it like measuring pain before the advent of that scale though I people have always been asked how much does it hurt so even we in india today we still say mild moderate severe which was much easier but that's the who style uh, yeah but but also now we've made it one one on 10 <laughs> so it's you know it, you can you can say it's 4 or it's 5 or it's 6 it's a numerical rating scale so it you can quantify it a little better So WHO has three steps because there are three steps of medication right to match those three steps of mild moderate and severe but but if if we were to map pain if yeah. we were to characterize pain yeah. severity is not the only axis it's not it's not right? so, there are there are many things we look at so it's also the quality of the pain uh, because you have different types of pain 
What do you mean by quality? Uh, quality is what the patient says it is. So he says something is stabbing him or something is burning him. Pain right. can be burning. You know, if the nerve is directly being stimulated, right. then the patient is going to say, but I feel a burning pain or I feel a shooting pain because it's going along the the nerve, sure. starting from, say, below the shoulder and going all the way in a millisecond up to the finger. So he'll tell you the pain is traveling, it's shooting. So there are different characteristics of pain. And and from a standpoint of assessing the underlying disease in your epistemy, as Harish would say it, does it does it work all right? Well, it work. I think now that it's become so scientific, if we can look at the various components, you know, there's a there are usually synonyms which help you to put the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. So you talk about a PQRST, for instance something which we use all the time. So we want to know what makes it better, what palliates it, or what makes it worse, so -hmm. that, you know, it increases it. And then we look at the Q, which is the quality. S is the severity. So severity was the faces scale or the the numerical rating scale. Then we look at, uh, like, what time of the day. So T is basically, is it worse in the morning? Is it worse in the evening? So, you know, there are various components, and then you put the whole thing together. And then you try to understand that this is what the patient has. And then I'll look at the next step and that's what's the medication which I need to use. What would a chiropractic person do? What would an Ayurveda person do? You, you still have to perform uh, some kind of measurement if you, if you intend to intervene in some way. No, I don't think, I don't know about measurement, but I mean in the sense... As, assess as you, it, assess it, it could be. Assess it. And this is, as she says, there can be, there can be different kinds of pain. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you'll have a you'll have another kind of map, you'll have another uh, different kind of palimpsest whereby the kind of questions you'll ask the patient will be different from the kind of questions that a biomedical doctor will ask the patient. So, for example, if you have stomach pain, as a mode of diagnosis, it might be very important to know whether the pain is above the navel or below the navel. Oh, I'm just just an, I'm just you know just an example. Sure. sure. Uh, and similarly, if you go to a chiropractor the kind of questions he's posing to you might be completely different or partly different from the kind of questions that a biomedical doctor might pose to you. And again, for a chiropractor, the pain per se is a problem. Again, it may not be an index of something else. So he or she is going to put you on a table and do some soft tissue work. Mm -hmm. They're going to address the pain in its own right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what they're there to do, rather than finding out whether the pain is an index of some other underlying disease. This is one. And the other is this notion of uh, that pain. But then pain can also be... But people might not sometimes believe that you're in pain. And for example, (laughs) my niece, who is a pediatrician, used to tell me when she was a young intern at the hospital in Madras that hundreds of poor patients would queue up. Right. And they all had the same kind of pain. And in Tamil, it's called KKK. means Kai Kal Korachal. Kai means hand. Kal means leg. Korachal means a kind of a harrowing kind of pain as if somebody has put a screwdriver inside you and is turning it around uh-huh. as if it would all line up because they all wanted to be admitted to the hospital right. because they were overworked they were poor right. and they probably wanted a bed and they wanted food but the doctors wouldn't admit them because they were all accused of malingering right. and the pain was seen to be illegitimate they were you know they were which we don't know I mean there's no way of finding out whether they're actually malingering or not and they they felt that hospital resources were being were likely to be abused by people who were malingering. So they did treat them. They did treat them by giving them distilled water injections. <laughs> and, uh, and my niece tells me that it worked in half the cases, <laughs> and which means it proved to the doctors they were indeed malingering. But then it's entirely moot 
maybe they were not malingering. It was like a placebo and it worked. And uh, so this is, so pain has many dimensions to it. And, but but uh, clearly there have to be ways beyond relying on the patient's testimony to assess nature of the brain and can you do the equivalent of MRI well, uh, or things of that nature. That's going back to the disease. Right. I mean, you can assess the disease by doing all these investigations. But for the to, to assess the quantity and the quality of the pain, because you're treating the pain, we're not treating the disease. I yeah. mean, we treat the disease to cure the pain, no doubt. Yeah. But here we're talking about treating the pain. So we, the only way we can really quantify it is by giving them the medication and finding out the response. Because if it was really a severe pain, then the patient would possibly be very drowsy the next day because we gave them too much medication. Other way around, if the patient said it was five and actually it was very severe, the medication would not have worked. And by tomorrow, we need to up the medication to the third step of the WHO ladder. It's very interesting. And well, I'm wondering about the, the ethics of taking pain at, at face value or um, uh, interrogating pain a little bit further. And I'm reminded of um, this moment in, um, uh, uh, in Mexico uh, where women in Oaxaca came to a clinic uh, complaining of um, somatic pain, of bodily pain. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in a distressed uh, community where men had uh, gone to the city uh, for work. It was conflict. Uh, it had been touched by conflict. Um, and women would come in in a similar manner to these... Um, uh, to these men in Madras to complain of bodily pain, uh, things that hurt in a particular way um, with, a, with a consistent etiology. Um, and they were given, in, in a context, whether ethically or not, they were given fluoxetine. So they were given an antidepressant uh, as opposed to a painkiller. Uh, and lo and behold, it seemed to work. Um, it could have been a placebo. It could have been uh, something that was um, uh, a meaningful use of an antidepressant. Um, but pain was treated by something that is not what I understand to be the standard um, body bodily mechanism in that case, yet it yet it worked. So that suggests to us, I think, that pain, uh, that the experience of pain and how pain is communicated may, may be, is likely quite different. Or it may also signal that every decade uh, there's a new, uh, I'd like to say, fad of how pain should be addressed. So in one particular context, in one particular decade, modern medicine might say that there's an act of malingering. In another context, another decade, it might say this is a sign of people being depressed. And uh, so we really don't know. So we, it all depends on... While if you go to an alternative uh, medical person, like uh, Ayurveda, uh, they will take, they'll say it, it makes perfect sense that poor people turn up at the hospital and they have kaikal korachal because if you're overworked, you will have bodily pain. Your value will be deranged and what they're complaining is perfectly understandable. So... And what is the antidote for that? The antidote is exactly what they are demanding. Rest. That if you give them rest and you give them good food, the pain will go away. So there are very many ways in which the, the problem of pain can be seen. And how it is seen depends on the context, on the particular kind of epistemology that you are operating with. Are you okay with that? Well, to put, to put what both of you are putting, saying, uh, which is really interesting, why can't I make it scientific and then say that pain has many dimensions? And you're talking about the psychological component of pain. But also let me bring in here that many of the drugs which we use for the management of pain are not painkillers. You know, for neurological pain, for instance, we use antidepressants and we use anticonvulsants mm. and we use antipsychotics. Just adding to the what, what, discussion what? over here. But fundamentally, what what does pain relief? What do you do? What do you do to the body? 
So if if there's a nerve ending issue yeah. or whatever, yeah. something yeah. to that effect, what do you do? So we have to relieve the that's that stimulus which is going from the place which is causing the pain stimulus which may be the cancer or the trauma mm-hmm. we have to relieve those impulses mm-hmm. so along that pathway which is being followed from the you know from the where the stimulus is to the spinal cord and from the spinal cord up to the brain somewhere along the, that pathway we've got to stop those impulses but in you know in the kind of cases that benjamin was talking about if there are relatively poor people in this economic distress feeling somewhat depressed so it's a psychological component so that if you are rep- if you are relieving the uh, depression which is a cause of pain as well probably the pain went away of course i'm just being simplistic i think you're talking more of social pain right so i'm just being simplistic no but this to, is physically manifested yeah. right benjamin Well, I don't think that is something something being physically manifest uh, means that it's not That's social. That's not the only way yeah. to keep it real. Yeah. Sure. I and mean, sure. I wonder what what I actually don't know if this is this is a disease that has currency here, but 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 um, uh, fibromyalgia in uh, a disease right. that I, I think vexes doctors um, yeah. uh, who may object even to the term. Uh, but the internet is littered with um, forum upon forum of people who are working through fibromyalgia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a word where the Google uh, search the click through rate is quite high uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, as a result. So what what do we do with something like that? It's a clinical entity. Fibromyalgic pain is basically considered as a clinical entity because the muscles here are going to spasm and the spasm of the muscles are causing pain. Now you may not only use a painkiller, you may use a muscle relaxant. And uh, you know, fibromyalgic pain is treatable and it it, it can be treated quite easily actually. It's a manifestation of psychological phenomenon. That's a you know that's a different issue. Altogether. No, but then the these kinds of pain might also have a social etiology, and the social etiology is that people suffer uh, because of overwork, and a lo- what a lot of what happens in in the in the in the twenty eighth century and twenty first century is that social suffering is medicalized, and having medicalized it, then you offer solutions. which are clinical in nature individual in nature while the real problem might be far more pervasive and it's social and you want to sidestep that because it's very difficult to address the problem is enormous and very large and rather than addressing the social problem you convert it into a medical problem so if you have korean migrants in for example in the us and the korean migrants are suffering from some disease then you can pathologize it by saying they're actually suffering from depression while they might not be suffering from depression they might be suffering from loneliness because they are in a new country and they are unable to cope and they don't have enough food to eat and they don't have employment so instead of finding them gainful employment you can pathologize their condition and saying they are suffering from depression and give them an antidepressant and it might work but it might work as a kind of palliative in the short run but not in the long run so these are other pain might be an index of something much larger that we might also need to take on board So so let's let's say I were um uh, a resident or a fellow or an attending physician uh at a uh, uh a hospital in West Virginia and uh I consistently saw people coming into my clinic uh, into my practice uh and they were showing up with similar types of pain uh maybe that pain looked a little bit like what you see with KKK uh in Madras um people were coming and I I I noticed that the consistency between these patients was that, was that they were um 
uh, overworked, they were disenfranchised in various ways, they were poor, uh, they were suffering in a variety of different ways. Uh, And rather than prescribing um, oxycodone or something similar, uh, my prescription was instead... um, uh, that we assassinate the uh, four uh, wealthiest people in uh, West Virginia and redistribute um, uh, uh, their wealth to uh, to to uh, those affected by this particular affliction. Uh, I think people would look at me appropriately so as if I were a lunatic. Um, sure. But if what we're saying about social pain is correct, and I think we have something of a consensus view on that here, um, then then why is the hospital or the clinic the only site of redress? Why don't we speak about pain? Uh, 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 more directly politically. Absolutely, we should, but unfortunately we don't because medicine steps in. And this is, I think, what has generally been said, the the medicalization of society. That a lot of social problems are pathologized, medicalized, and then you offer what are seemingly to be one-shot solutions. And a good example of that are epidemic diseases. But the social solutions are more complex. They are complex. They, they are very complex. Which they is are. not to suggest that giving the antidepressant or whatever is the right thing to do, not at all. Yes. But and they, they might also work, the antidepressants. So if the Korean migrants are turning up, complaining of similar sorts of pain, yes. what do you do? Well, I mean, you need to address it. You need to find them, as he sure. says, redistribute the wealth, find them gainful employment, accommodate them in a society more meaningfully, not stigmatize them, all, all kinds of things. And, but instead, you can pathologize their condition, diagnose them as being depressive, stigmatize their condition, and then offer them antidepressives, and which might also work or they may not work. And uh, so this this is this is what we are, this is what he's saying, and this this is the kind of consensus. This is what we are indicating by saying that pain has many dimensions to it. It's an index of many things, and it does not mean you're suffering from bodily pain. But if you're suffering from bodily pain, what are its causes? Are and we the to stop could only be with social? It could be economic. It, it could, could be cultural. Be all, it could be could all be of these combination yeah, of but all it of may, these. It may not only be just physical. Uh, those physical, those what physical ones might be proximate causes. Those proximate causes might have ultimate causes which are beyond the physical. So, as the clinician, I'm again saying that that's what palliative care actually tries to do. It goes away from the physical and looks into the psychological, social, and spiritual component. So I am interested in, you know, the the poor ladies who are coming to the hospital and trying to see whether this is a social reason and also what Benjamin said, because definitely the pain that we see as clinicians is has a lot to do with the social environment from where the patients come. And if we don't look at that social environment and try to address it, we are not going to be able to address pain in all its, you know, in but all the components. How do you address it, Marianne? Because it helps you assess and it helps you better understand what might be at work there. No, but, but when we go into the homes of the patients, we actually see their social environment. Mm-hmm. And if poverty is one of the causes, or maybe lack of hygiene is one of the causes, mm-hmm. and maybe uh, some of the pain the person is feeling is because he doesn't have enough money to send his kids to school. Sure. Because he's used up all the money he had on some unnecessary intervention. Sure. Then by us providing the education for the child, which is what we do on a regular basis, then a lot of his pain has been taken away. And he can sleep better at night. Yeah, it works. Yeah, absolutely. And how is chronic pain different? Well, chronic pain is a manifestation of pain. But the thing is that the difference between acute pain and chronic pain is one in the assessment. Because when you have acute pain, you have symptoms like high raised blood pressure, 
pulse raised where sure. you can diagnose the severity of the pain sure. in chronic pain these get dulled so all those signs don't help us mm-hmm. but chronic pain actually those nerves which are being stimulated they can be stimulated extra because you know they're going on re- repeatedly being stimulated and therefore a pain which should be by scientifically should be only 6 actually has gone up to 9 because of hyper stimulation of those nerve endings again and is there like progressive degeneration well it's not because of degeneration it's just because of recruitment of more fibers sorry for the sure. medical terms sure 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 but so actually the patient is actually feeling the pain which you see the lesion and you think okay this guy should have a pain of 6 but he has 9 And that's because, that's because of because the pathways have just yeah they're just to... being re-stimulated over and over and over again and so, so his pain is 9 it's not 6 that's why we say pain is subjective because for him it's 9 and i have to treat a pain of 9 to be able to get his pain under control so then as you as, as you stop the stimulus from going through the nerve you know repeatedly then the level of stimulation of that nerve is going down because i'm deadening those stimuli and then his pain is going to come down to what it should be which would not have happened if there wasn't that continuous stimulation of that nerve again and again and what's the most radical reset that you can do so if somebody has a pain of 9 can you just totally set set that person free oh yeah there are a lot of drugs we have i mean the pain yeah. of 9 for me is easy i can i can treat it within yeah. 24 hours i'd have brought it down at least to 3 no but i mean like a near permanent reset a near permanent Uh, well there are blocks and all that which we use again i'm being purely clinical but sure. there are ways by which that nerve can be deadened by using a block mm-hmm. so you just so kill off that nerve like switching the pain off yeah you you know you kind of deaden that stimulus completely by giving a, an injection which blocks that stimulus completely we don't use it very often because we have good enough drugs now in the market so we don't really need to do blocks but those are permanent solutions and is is a pain free world necessarily a better world or oh that's a very large question i think <laughs> i think that's impossible it's uh, because i mean pain is fairly central to us being who we are of course if that's music and our poetry would be terrible yeah <laughs> yeah i think you need pain i mean pain actually what is pain pain is telling you that something's going wrong some kind of an alarm system yeah and therefore i think the alarm systems are required for us to set things in order whether it's physical or whether it's psychological or and social sometimes these are social alarms yeah there's social alarms and starting with the reflex reflex is the most basic kind of thing and i think we're all wired i think pain also is an alarm it's also in terms of safety that pain is so important for making sure that things are safe so i really don't know whether we can it's like saying that you know can we imagine a world only of happiness with no sorrow then i think we won't know what happiness is yeah and uh, i think there is a it's like it's like saying can we imagine a world only of light without darkness yeah you won't be able to see an image unless you have a contra- that's why you have a contrast yeah. i can make you blind by switching on too much light or having too little light but i suppose we need some kind of an optimal uh, some pain that is optimal and uh, which is an ideal thing but that of, co- of course doesn't happen all the time how does how does torture work karish not suggesting you're an expert on it or anything but yeah i'm not an expert on torture but i suppose torture is uh, well i mean it's it's something that uh, seems to be routinely deployed by modern statecraft for uh, purposes of interrogation uh, and uh, and many so called modern democratic states have torture manuals and though they are often in denial 
and very often these torture manuals have been funded by by the state and where scientific disciplines like psychology uh, have been used to, to prepare these torture manuals we have a very famous one in his country i forget what the name of that is i think it's called the kubrak manual and if i'm right i don't know if i'm pronouncing the word right and i teach about this now and then in my coursework uh, and these are uh, and it's uh, so on the one hand you you say you're a democracy and the torture is something that's not to be done uh, but this torture for and torture is seen as a truth producing machine yeah and 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 it seems beyond a point the victims are being tortured to. for them it makes no difference whether it's the truth or the lie and they're willing to tell you whatever you want want them to say uh so uh, it's a uh, i mean but it's there it's, it seems to be central uh, i'm not saying it wasn't there in the past i think it's always been with us but it continues to be central even to modern democracies yeah it yeah. seems to be an abomination but it's there yeah but harish is also speaking about more um spectacular forms of torture and i i i i would bring in um uh the italian philosopher giorgio agamben who um asks us to consider um what um um sins of sins of omission as the same of sin, as sins of commission um yes. and while it may be kind of easy and i'm not suggesting it's facile but it's easy to glom onto um moments of spectacular torture um allowing people to live in states of chronic pain in large numbers um that strikes me as something that's akin to torture um that's certainly something that's an abnegation of duties that we would expect of a government be it um here be it in the United States be it in Europe um so i i wonder if we could look beyond sort of that the the more narrow definition of 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 torture that we might call to mind how does one attack these uh benjamin so can new new kinds of markets can new kinds of economic structures mitigate pain um uh, so let's say we agree on the assessment of what causes what and let's obviously it seems like we agree that there's a social dimension to things there's an economic dimensions to things but is 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 there a way to well one of the great things about being a historian is that you never have to look into the future um <laughs> but but that you know that said um i i'd call to mind that we're um what's worked in the past what's worked um uh, uh very few of our uh human experiments at creating egalitarian societies have worked very well so that's still a work in progress we're recording this um on the 150th anniversary of the publication of marx's capital um there's one that has had a tremendous influence on uh schemes to improve the human condition over the last century and a, and a half um but but this question of pain and we've spoken a bit about this is um is really baked into some of the fundamentals of 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 uh political economy in the modern world um but for example if there was a way to somewhat radically at mm. a somewhat large scale change the nature of work would it lessen the amount of pain um if someone would like to fund a large randomized control trial i would be very happy to be a, a one of the pi's <laughs> on that 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 experiment sure uh, paging mr gates um <laughs> it's it's possible it would i don't i don't i don't know if it would if it if it would reduce our pain um uh it may be that that we're working with with uh uh with a bunk hypothesis that inequality uh and pain are actually disconnected i i i doubt that um uh but we the, part of the difficulty in this is that we can't be strict empiricists on this question if we're not uh uh clinicians and does this angle make sense to you what's your instinct on this does inequality cause pain uh my instinct says yes 
but I guess as a clinician, I wouldn't be able to substantiate, uh, you know, that. Mm. Most definitely, I think, uh, I think people who are in poverty definitely feel more pain, which is all dimensions. I mean, like we were talking about, you know, just needing that rest in the bed in Madras, in the you know, in the hospital, and that's why they fabricated pain. That's that's a pain of poverty. But you know, if one has always experienced some form of distress, one has always been in some kind of difficulty. Wouldn't the threshold be higher? Maybe the pain, amount of pain, is also higher. Obviously yeah, but I'm being simplistic uh, but, here. But, but but it's also it's also like uh, like when we're talking about reinforcement of pain. You know, like you feel it for a long time, it actually gets worse. Uh, I guess it, it pain is a very complex thing, and it's that that's why we say it's subjective because it's what each individual feels. And I just want to add, sorry, I know I'm going backwards in what we said two, no, two things ago, but uh, the Human Rights Watch thinks that pain, the, you know, the presence of pain is a torture. And I really don't think that the Indian government is doing enough to make a pain-free world for its citizens. I don't think that we work hard enough in getting the pain drugs into the country as we need to, to make it a pain-free society. What do you need? You need more morphine? Need... We need a lot more morphine. We need morphine availability. We have morphine. We don't. We may not have enough, but we have morphine. What we don't have is availability of morphine. You know, the what... license, the Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act of 1985 made morphine availability for us to be, as medical professionals, to be able to access morphine for our patients very difficult. And in 2013, the rule was changed. But as you can understand, that's four years ago. And it still hasn't made availability in morphine in all the hospitals. But what's the problem with that? It's, it's licensing. You know, licensing for morphine for medical institutions is very tough. It's First of all, it's controlled by the Ministry of Revenue. No, but that's fine. But there has to be an underlying logic, right? There's some facts. The there. logic was basically for addiction. You know, the the it was felt, uh, this is a 1985. But is it straightforward? Does morphine cause addiction? I don't believe morphine causes addiction because we use oral morphine in at least 95% of patients. And oral morphine does not cause any addiction. It, does it doesn't do, even do. cause that high, which... Uh, which diamorphine or heroin causes it just causes drowsiness but it's a perfect drug for pain it's cheap it's effective and it doesn't have a ceiling effect so however much of morphine a patient needs for pain we can go up on the dose and up on the dose and up on the dose and we can still is, give is, is pain morphine relief. a kind of opioid it is an opioid it is an opioid but under the it... narcotic drugs and psychosopic substances act sure. so it's a it needs a license and it's a controlled substance I mean, I'm 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 speaking from the vantage of 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 a country that has had a uh, a tremendous uh, and heavily destructive surplus of opioids over the last thirty years or so, um, and that's something that's been marked by an effort to uh, uh, increase accessibility that began in the early uh, 1980s, 1981, with the publication of something called the JICS study, um, which suggested that opioids were not nearly as addictive as they had been uh, previously held, uh, and it brought them into a non-clinical to a home setting or um, uh, 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 other clinical setting. But that's a somewhat dubious study, Sorry? isn't it? Isn't that, was a, that was a dubious study. That was done as a, a data sampling. Uh, right. There was no actual trial done, but it was it was a review of uh, something like 40,000 cases done at um, uh, uh, the Boston Medical Center. Um, but we saw over the course of the last 30 years um, a progressive relaxation of regulation, um, and we also saw companies take advantage of that um, in the process. Mallinckrodt was one of the, um, the guilty parties in this. They introduced... Um, 
uh, Oxycontin into the American market uh, and then uh, misrepresented, um, I guess it's not a half-life, but misrepresented the amount of time it takes to um, uh, to leave the body. Uh, and they placed it lower than lower than it w- than it actually was. And we saw a tremendous addiction. That was that that was our gateway drug into the opioid crisis. Now, you know, but malefied intentions aside, mm. do opioids are opioids addictive? Uh, I'm probably ill qualified to answer that as as a historian. Um, right. Um, I can I, I can say more descriptively uh, that 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 um, uh, uh, people use opioids in way that are consistent with addiction. Uh, wh- whether that whether that is biological or not, I'm 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 not qualified can to answer pain that. Can be addictive. Can pain be addictive? Pain can be addictive. What actually what happens is, uh, you know, patients take morphine for pain. So. Over a period of time, they keep taking morphine because the pain can't go away. It's because of cancer or it's because of a degenerative disorder. So they get physically, uh, you know, dependent on morphine. But that's not an addiction. Is pain addictive? Can, is pain addictive? It's a difficult is... question actually to answer. No, I suppose can, can, can pain that's the, give the... a certain kind of pleasure? I don't, we'll come to the pleasure in a moment, but you know, I think if we make a distinction between acute pain and chronic pain, mm-hmm. uh, at least the kind of literature that's available on chronic pain says that uh, that very often, again, I think this partly may have to do with the episteme. Sure. Uh, that pain is one way in which people, a pain can be used for malingering. And one of the reasons why you malinger is because you want attention. You right. want social attention and psychological attention. Sure. And then people might then uh, continue to be in pain because if the pain goes away, and then they might not be able to get what they are getting because they have pain. Yeah. Now I don't know of any but, of all this. But that, that, that's there's a strategic dimension there. No, this is what. But this is this might be an ethic point of view. This might not be the point of view of the suffering person. But what? But what also this means is that chronic pain, unlike acute pain has another kind of dimension because you can have chronic pain for 20 years. Yeah. And I witnessed this myself personally. Uh, it stigmatizes you. It stigmatizes you and then beyond the point, you're not able to talk about your pain because if you talk about your pain, uh, you have no sympathy beyond a point. And then you, uh, people think, then people you think that? you're making it up because people think you're making it up because you want attention. And then people will actually then accuse you of being addicted to your pain. Right. And then people might even say, oh, you, you like being in pain. Which right. sometimes seems Learned cruel. helplessness or something. Exactly. Like it seems completely cruel to tell somebody who's suffering and who has acute pain that you like being in pain. You want to be in pain. I mean, you're addicted to pain. While uh, that might not be the case. So we must be very wary uh, and of, sure. of these remarks sure. of somebody who's a chronic sufferer. Sure. And then there's, a, there's another dimension to this. The other dimension to it is sometimes... Your, then your pain is seen to be illegitimate in many ways. So, for example, supposing you have endometrial pain and you are not able to conceive a child yeah. and you go to a gynecologist and then you tell the gynecologist, I'm in severe pain. Yeah. You try and treat my pain, especially in a South Asian context, yeah. given the fact that you're supposed to have, you live in a society of pro-natalism. We are supposed to have a child at any cost. Gynecologists will sometimes tell women that it's outrageous that you're complaining about your pain which is so trivial compared to the fact that you should be having a child. The opposite of antinatalism, you yeah, have to have a child. That's right, exactly, <laughs> that's right. So the entire emphasis on is on having a child. And if you if pain is something that you have to suffer, totally you bloody will suffer it. what has to be. Yeah. Sure. So then the pain, so the fact that you can actually talk about your pain makes you 
an illegitimate person, illegitimate kind of human being. Uh, and yeah, rather what, than... You're perceived as weak? No, you're selfish. Not as weak, as selfish. That you're putting your own pain and your own body ahead of having a child. And as a woman, that's your first task. Right. And if you don't do that, then you're failing for God's chosen destiny. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they're not blah, blah, blah. So you sure. can, so pain has these several kinds of dimensions to it, especially when you're, when you're having chronic pain. And chronic pain in many ways is unshareable. It stigmatizes you. Uh, you know, it, 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 it pushes you aside in ways which acute pain doesn't push you aside. And it marginalizes you in ways that acute pain does not marginalize you. Uh, and then, and there are many pain clinics over the, all over the world. And very often then people unable to take the chronic pain commit suicide. Uh, and yeah. then, and again, given this mind-body dualism, what happens is very often chronic pain is sought to be managed in these pain clinics by teaching patients how to handle their pain mentally because you're not able to handle the pain with drugs. What do pain clinics do? Uh, I think what she'll tell us. What do pain clinics do, Benjamin? You, well, in the States, they prescribe. Uh, Medicines? Uh, 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 Isn't it supposed to be more total than that? Well, I mean, there's 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 all varieties of uh, pain clinics you could find. Um, there's been in the United States, there's been a proliferation of pop-up shops, uh, places mm -hmm. that uh, are essentially drugs on demand. Um, we saw those as very geographically uh, 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 localized uh, in in some of the poorer parts of the country, but also also in in um, uh, the suburbs of of, of uh, wealthy metropolitan areas too. So they've they've been all over. Um, that's the case, um, certainly in the Northeast where uh, I live and work. Um, there are other places but that why, you... why would the rich people feel pain? They're not in any economic district. They're just low. Uh, I, I don't. You know, the, the class dimension has been more kind of working class in this than than, sure. than rich people. But sure. but but um, uh, there are also other techniques like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or other things that are used, but but not in the types of clinics we at least see uh, in the states. What do pain clinics do? Uh, well, I mean, the pain clinic doesn't necessarily have to be outside the hospital. In the hospital, as both of you have just nicely said, there's a lot of psychological element like cognitive behavioral therapies are part and parcel of what you do when you're trying to manage chronic and what, pain. And what are the tricks you just ask people to... You ask them to look at and, you know, to imagine a beautiful image, whether it's the beach in Goa or it's, you know, maybe the Himalayas, wherever you've been in some place. It works. It works. Uh, there, was a, there was a person who we've just treated. In fact, we lost him just three days ago. Mm. And I think he's been, he was in, uh, with us in the hospital for almost 90 days. Mm. Uh, we just couldn't control his pain and he wanted to go home. Mm. So every day I would tell him that, uh, Jason, if you want to go home, then when you have that acute on chronic pain, the acute episode of the chronic pain, if you go home, then you can't just press the button and the doctor will come running. It's not going to work. So what you're really going to have to do, and our clinical psychologist came and really taught him to do that imagery, you know, self-hypnosis. So you just visualize yourself having fun yeah. on a beach, yeah. I mean, having at least your favorite ice cream. I mean, I won't say fun, but more of peace. Sure. You know, more of trying to look at something which is serene and uh, quiet and peaceful and calm and then your breathing comes down and your you know the those impulses which are going you know jangling in those nerves they honestly start relaxing and the so patient it works. it works it definitely works i can't say it worked in jason's case but because you know we never managed to get him home he passed away in the hospital but it works stuff it is, yes, that's right, it is. But it doesn't, I'm, I'm so glad to hear, I'm sure it does work, but sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. And we don't know what the percentage is. 
and it doesn't work and then pain becomes chronic pain patients sometimes commit suicide oh yes absolutely in fact that's why we talk about the social pain because we have to take care of that element that's right you know we have to be with the patient we have to we encourage the family members uh, you know to try to uplift the patient's feelings all the time so What's that they're they diverted they can go out they should not be ever allowed to be on the bed and face the wall they should always be someone who's trying to give a counter stimulus so that they can forget the pain and try and concentrate on something else it is a very real danger a chronic pain which is unrelenting most definitely can lead to suicide and it obviously changes everybody around the patient absolutely. so it's absolutely. not none of this is straightforward yeah. what's the craziest kind of pain different thing for different people you've said several yeah, yeah. times that pain is subjective actually neuropathic pain is the worst because it's what is you know pain? neuropathic pain is where the nerve is actually being stimulated it's like a burning pain it's like as if you're in the fire so you literally feel as if that particular part of your body is burning up because the nerve is being stimulated so hard uh, and it's not that easy to treat because all the drugs we have they take a little bit of time to act so there's no instantaneous uh you know release to this accepting as we said earlier that you know if you if you give an injection which totally destroys the nerve you don't want to do that and that's why there we really though we have a lot of drugs we still need a lot more drugs and that's why i'd like to emphasize the fact that we just don't have enough we i don't think we're going to reach where the us has reached now 30 years from But now i, don't I think would think the us is in a very great i mean it yeah, but I would problems. think that we need to learn in social, you know, in social history. We need to learn from the mistakes of others, and we should not go down that same road at all. I don't think that's an excuse but for more, us not more, to get drugs. Just, yeah, we should just be, get the drugs. Agree. Just because the United States has has gone down a, a pretty devastating path, that doesn't. Um, I think there's a, there's a there. You know, we speak in terms of rights, and that can be problematic. But I I would speak of a right to uh, to being broadly, if not entirely, pain free, or to ha- or to have technologies that can reduce one's pain yeah. uh and if those technologies are are um uh, are in short supply in india that's 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 a problem um and um uh what ha- what happens in the united states has not been replicated say in western europe so there's no indication that that it would necessarily here uh and that's where that work of culture and that work of politics uh comes in that i think is very significant and then we might also want to look at other alternative epistemes absolutely i un- i 100% endorse care. that and especially yes. for palliative care absolutely i mean as conditions. a palliative care person we absolutely endorse that whatever there is which works whatever works yes. we have to be able but to all there, join hands and use it together but is there an active uh, solicitation oh yes absolutely absolutely i think in palliative care especially much more than any of the other branches of medicine we are reaching out to ayurveda we are reaching out to uh, homeopathy we are reaching out to all the systems of medicine because we know that we have limitations absolutely and we absolutely know that if someone else's medicine is going to join hands with us right. then yes. we have to put all of it together which includes you know the imagery and the cognitive behavioral of therapy course, techniques yeah, and yeah, everything put it all yeah, together exactly. and have a pain free world is it possible what's the future well i think i'd still like to go back to what harris said that i don't think we should get away with pain pain is needed yeah pain is needed to keep people to understand that what's good in life but equally benjamin's thought is so beautiful that we have, it's it's nice to have a right to 
Absolutely. Lessen one's pain. Absolutely. Right. That is absolutely but that that ignores some of some of the work of meaning that that pain does for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, there are many religious traditions here uh, and abroad that 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 emphasize um, uh, the role of suffering. Experiencing pain on somebody else's behalf. Uh, that's 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 fundamental to Christian eschatology, yeah. uh, to a lot of different uh, renunciant traditions. Uh, uh, the, the the meaning that people imbue to pain and suffering is is uh, socially and religiously valuable. So I, I can't imagine a world where we didn't have that pain. And 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 for those of us who are more secular minded too, um, uh, 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 reading, the, uh, seeing others pay, others pain through through literature, through art, that's that's a fundamental part of being a human being. Uh, it's part of the flourishing of emotional expression that all of us um, have aspired to touch in different ways. Yeah, and you know that just to follow up on that, and this goes back to what you raised earlier. Yeah. And what he also said that he'd be like to part of a randomized clinical trial on working less. Yeah. It's not just working less, but working for what? Yeah. And what for Having, what purpose are you working? Yeah. And this is what again to go back to Marx in terms of alienated labor. Yeah. If you're working towards a purpose that is for you enormously meaningful. Yeah. Less even painful less, work might yeah. not appear to be painful. And while even if you're working towards something that's completely alienated and meaningless, and even if you're working less, uh, then it might still be painful. Yeah. So, and I think this in terms of, so we need to have an eschatology and a soteriology, which unfortunately modern secular societies no longer have. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that the older ones that you had are necessarily wonderful. They've had their fair share of problems. So, but we also need to think about that. that there you is know, a what place is the for meaning, suffering. What is the meaning we attribute to work? And sometimes you realize or approach some meaning why are suffering? Um, why Why are we suffering? Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Why are we suffering? Yeah, I mean, but suffering can be noble. Suffering can be edificatory. Suffering can be enormously meaningful. I mean, you can, you can, we all suffer, parents suffer to bring up children. Yeah. But they don't, uh, and they feel that suffering is worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, because uh, then you know you have something outside of you yeah. that is enormously valuable, yeah. and you think uh, the suffering for that something that's valuable is is wonderful. Uh, and I think so. That's the dimension that we need to keep in mind. And if we take it away and just talk about pain per se, work per se, without some kind of a eschatology and soteriology in place, the purpose, the meaning, then I think the then we are lost. Am I making sense? Of course, yeah. yeah. It, it 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 gets us into a question of of negotiating values that I think is is fraud. Um, we talk about these noble ways in which we might suffer to bring up a child. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, we might look at someone who uh, 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 puts himself or herself through a great deal of pain for what we see as vanity. And I'm thinking of someone who goes to the gym all the time, who is who has a really muscular, fit, athletic body um, at the cost of uh, a reasonable amount of pain to oneself. And we might make a value judgment about whether that is a... a um, uh, a good use of pain, a good use of suffering, uh, and I'm using these words a little loosely here. Or are you yeah. being narcissistic? Uh, right, and that's and that's that's a judgment. Not everything that that requires suffering is virtuous. No, not um, at all. Not at all. I, yeah. And I, I think you're actually of the experience of um, this. Maybe brings us internally again, but the experience of um, say uh, anorexics. Um, we look at something where um, uh, we know that anorexia is something that that that. Uh, 
appears to give gratification, if not pleasure, to someone who's going through it. And the social presentation of that has changed over time. A hundred years ago, um, uh, women used to uh, uh, engage in, they used to be described as being having frenetic energy uh, of playing shuttlecock, of uh, yeah. being involved in volunteer activities. And as social context changed and physical context changed, uh, uh, more there was more privacy. It could present itself in different ways. But in both of those cases, uh, women, and it's primarily women who, who manifest it, uh, uh, describe gratification in the process. Um, it's amazing uh, how even something as, nothing is that personal, but even something like one's body is so socially constructed. Completely. It's the most socially constructed thing we have. We all, we all, we all claim to have um, uh, intimate experiences with our own bodies, uh, and they remain mysteries to most most of us. And they're heavily conditioned by uh, the world that we we use them or try to use them in. With because we often have to put them in language when the suffering has to be put into language, and, and which means we have to have concepts. Yeah. And these concepts are not, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't get made ab initio out of nothing. And you have to, and they are supplied by, by the work of, by the work of culture. Yeah, they are historically produced. They are produced in societies, uh, and you. Uh, so there's no getting away from that. I mean, you have to. Uh, I just want to say that though I do appreciate that suffering brings meaning in life, I still think we all need to work harder Nobody's in this country. Nobody tries to work suffering per se. So it's a suffering yeah. as some kind of a means to some kind of meaning to Agreed, some kind but of... I still think that we need to work towards abolition of pain in this country especially for those patients who are you know really suffering in pain because of disease oh that's well there's lots we need to do it's very hard to disagree with that <laughs> could we could 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 we put out as a as a postulate that 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 no one should um, uh, no one should suffer in ways that 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 they that, that they, they don't, don't desire Absolutely, I think so. That's a very good way to end, I think. Yeah. yeah, so some people can just tolerate some pain and then you obviously don't forcibly take yeah. the pain away or something to that effect. Thank you. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank okay, you very much. Okay, thank you so much.